Welcome, everybody, to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. And welcome to the next edition of ASP. We're pleased to have a great guest today, uh, Mr. Eddie Fisher, the Vice President of Gulf Hydrographic and Coastal Consulting out of down on the Texas coast, down there in uh, in Brazoria County. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks, Peter. It's uh, good to hear from you again, and uh, good to uh, meet you, Tyler. Well, it's great to have you on, Eddie, and uh, I want to welcome all of our listeners back from the Thanksgiving holiday break. I hope everyone had a wonderful time with their families and stuffed themselves full of turkey and stuffing and pie. Uh, And now it's Monday and we're back to work and uh, we've had a a bunch of really interesting news on the American shoreline. Of course, the National Climate Assessment came out and uh, you can bet your bottom dollar here on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network and on Coastal News Today that we will be covering that in great detail. Uh, But today, Peter, we're really excited to be talking waterways dredging in the 2019 uh, core work plan. Uh, this is an area of the coast that is super important, and we're, we're happy to be giving it a little time today. And of course, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Dune Doctors, a dune restoration and consulting company out of Pensacola, Florida. They do outstanding work in this area, dunedoctors.com for more information. It's really great, and Eddie, that's why we're happy to have you on. Uh, we we ask a lot of our coasts, but our waterways and our the dredging programs we all operate and the Corps of Engineers investment on the American shoreline is a big, boisterous topic. It's a little complicated out there. And for our listeners who don't work in waterways and dredging uh, day in and day out, we thought we'd have you on to walk us down the path a little bit and talk about the state of affairs on the American shoreline. Uh and Eddie, for the benefit of our listeners, can you do a little personal introduction and tell us a little bit about what you've been doing for the last 15 or 20 years? <laughs> we, we can go back 50 if you want to, because uh, uh, I'm 64 now. Uh, I'm a fourth uh, generation native of the Texas coast. I was born in Port Lavaca, uh, went to college in Austin and came back shortly after that and started working in the family business of uh, dredging and did that for quite a few years um, until um, the state of Texas had a coastal erosion program start in the year 2000. And I was, uh, uh, was really interested. I think it was the only state job I was qualified to do. Uh, and luckily I did get it, uh, uh, managing the coastal erosion program for the general land office for about 10 years from 2001 to 2010. Since that I've been working with some uh, different dredging companies, smaller dredging companies, larger dredging companies. Then I've decided in the last year or so, I stepped back a little bit and wanted to find something that would keep me active, uh, but uh, not have a full-time job. So I started a hydrographic surveying company along with consulting. So I help some of the smaller businesses through permitting issues, uh, project management, um, uh, and then also doing the pre-dredge and post-dredge surveys for them. So it's it's worked out nice. We've only been doing it about a year. Well, congratulations on the new firm. Uh, 
You know, before we dive into it a little bit more, for the benefit of our listeners around the country who may not be familiar with the Texas General Land Office, um, that is a state agency, the oldest agency in the state of Texas, goes back to the days of the Texas Republic, and uh, managed by a statewide elected official. And if you were there from 2001 to 2010, well, you worked under a few land commissioners in your day, didn't you, at the land office? I worked under two. Uh, I was hired under the David Dewhurst administration, and then I was retained when uh, Jerry Patterson uh, was elected and uh, stayed there through almost the second uh, term of, uh, of, of, of his. Well, I, I think our listeners may be familiar with Jerry Patterson. He was a guest on the Next Swell podcast with uh, Rob Nixon, a really great interview from a former state land commissioner. Uh, but the reason I, I, I bring that up, Eddie, is because people don't necessarily know that the land office is the lead coastal agency in the state of Texas. And if you were running right. the shoreline response program for that agency in its first decade, you, you've been... You've been moving a lot of dirt on the Texas coast and, and trying to make the Texas coast a better place. Yes, it was real exciting times. Um, uh, the Coastal Erosion Planning and Response Act, as you say, the General Land Office is kind of this, uh, well, what is that and why is this agency running it is because they're in charge of all of the submerged lands in Texas. So it was really kind of the, the best landing spot uh, for it. Um, and I don't know if you, you knew this in its early days, uh, Peter, the, the act was actually called the Mosley Act for Joe Mosley, who helped lobby to get uh, the coastal erosion program uh, started in Texas. Uh, <clears throat> Eddie, for our, for our listeners, who is, who is Mosley? Joe Mosley was one of the founding partners of probably the premier coastal engineering firm in Texas out of Corpus Christi, Shiner Mosley and Associates. Hey. It's uh, 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 Joe has passed, and the company has uh, now been acquired by HDR, and they still maintain their offices in Corpus Christi and Houston, and of course several other places. It's a large engineering company, but they were really the pioneer of a lot of the coastal projects um, going back all the way to the 1960s. Right, I remember Joe as in when we were putting together the coastal management program. Uh, submission to the federal government for approval. Uh, Joe served on the Coastal Coordination Council, I think. He he predated all of that effort, as you say, going back to the 70s. Uh, he was, I think, led the first effort to get a coastal management program right. in Texas and was one of those salty old hands who knew all about the coast and was a fine engineer and, and, and really excellent in politics. He was a real he was a real treasure and I think played a huge role in bringing the Coastal Management Program and KEPRA to, uh, to reality in Texas. Yes, absolutely. You don't uh, find too many people who have the, the passion for politics and engineering like Joe did, but uh, he, he was a master at it. Well, Eddie, uh, I want to talk to you just broadly with all of your years of experience working on the shoreline of, of the great state of Texas. What is your overall assessment of how we are doing in managing not only our erosion problems, but also our bustling ports and waterways? Uh, obviously, uh, Texas is a major, major shipping state. 
give us your your kind of broad assessment of how we are doing. Um, it's it's like you say, it's sort of a mixed bag. I kind of look at it in uh, three different areas. You have the ports, and you have the bay marsh systems, and then you have the coastal beaches. And for me, and it, it might just be my history because I was with the erosion program, always having to fight for money, is that um, the the Gulf of Mexico facing beaches in Texas did not and still do not get the attention that they really need. There's been a lot done. There's been many steps, of course, the coastal erosion program, and then we have some hopefully future funding coming through different avenues. But there's always a fight for uh, where that money goes. Um, economics, for the most part, say that you know the the ports uh, are number one because there's such an economic driver in Texas, um, and you, you can't argue with that. So they're probably the 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 500 pound gorilla, and uh, the marshes luckily have been getting. Uh, a good bit of attention over the last 20 years with a lot of restoration programs. Um, there's been some grant money for that, and actually some of the coastal erosion funds could be used on marsh restoration as well as uh, beach nourishment projects. So when I was with uh, the state, we partnered with other uh, resource agencies to uh, do not only beach restoration, but marsh restoration projects as well. And so I'd say um, we're, uh, I think we're still at the treading water point on, uh, on golf beaches. That's very interesting, Eddie. Uh, what, when you say treading water point, uh, I, it's kind of a neutral, we're, we're, we're winning a little and we're also not, we're not fully there. What, where are we lacking? Well, what I had uh, what I've seen is, uh, and had worked for when I was with the state is rather than putting a little money here and a little money there is to try to go after some major projects. Some of the more important um, you know, beaches in, in Texas are, are South Padre Island, and then we have a long gap that um, is actually uh, privately owned areas in the South Texas coast until you get up to the Corpus Christi area and which luckily doesn't have too bad of an erosion problem because it's where the coastal currents meet north and south. And so they don't have um, uh, a, a, an offshore flow that uh, uh, accelerates the erosion. However, as you go more northeast on the Texas coast and you get into um, the area where I am, uh, well, starting really in Matagorda, and then Freeport, Texas, up to Galveston, and then over to Beaumont and Port Arthur, you get into an area that's um, uh, subject to the drift from the Mississippi River, which is why um, you have this this difference in watercolor um, uh, because of the the flow coming from the Mississippi River. It's like uh, when you tell your when you take your friends from around the country and you tell them you're going to the beach in Galveston and you drive up and you have them look over the seawall, the first thing they say is, why is the water brown? Right. And, <laughs> yeah, I, li I like to say that the, the Texas coast is an acquired taste. It's a little bit like you have to learn to appreciate what's beautiful about the Texas coast, especially the northern part of the Texas coast, because 
Boy, you get over there to, uh, you know, to the east side, or the, the east side of the Mississippi River, and you're in the Florida panhandle where it's pristine white sand, and it all, because it comes out of the Mississippi and takes a hard right turn and comes to Texas, all that river sediment. Yep, and that's right, and, and, and really you don't get to see pure naturally um, sandy beaches with blue water until you get down to to Port O'Connor toward uh, Port Aransas. And then uh, from there on, it's, it's really pretty to everybody. But uh, like you say, it's an acquired taste uh, on the upper Texas coast. Um, Eddie, if you, in your many years, you've worked in state government for about 10 years. You've been in the uh, private sector on, on shoreline management and dredging. Um, why is it, do you think, that we have not been able as a state to put together a reliable, recurrent uh, funding strategy for the Texas coast. Um, we know the stats because I was at the land office. Right, it's 367 miles of beaches. 40% of them are eroding. I can't remember the number. It's a lot. And yet, why is it that we have not been able to crack that political nut and get that done? I think it's um, a combination of things, but um, one of the things is is that um, a lot of people see the beachfront as something that belongs to the beachfront homeowners, the so-called rich beachfront homeowners, and they sort of hold them responsible for being the ones to carry the torch for this, and it's, it's it was a difficult task to bring everybody's awareness that the, the beaches and the erosion problems are uh, everybody's problem. They're infrastructure problems, they're uh, natural resource damage problems um, with uh, eroding of the dunes and for sea turtle nesting and that sort of thing. So that was one of the biggest challenges I had when I was at the land office was trying to get the stakeholders to agree that the the coastal beaches were something that um, needed protection and and needed the hardest thing to get, which is money. Eddie, is it is it easier to I mean, politically, is it easier for uh, state officials in Texas to allocate money toward uh, ports and waterways, you know, coastal pieces of infrastructure that have a clear commercial benefit as opposed to beaches. Now, we all know that beaches have a tremendous economic uh, place in Texas, but I'm curious to know in your experience if there, you know, we, we don't automatically make the connection, as Peter would say, the Hawaiian shirt syndrome. We don't make the same connection with, uh, with beaches and the economic impact as we do with ports and waterways. Yes, and I think a lot of that is that, you know, it, it, it is a political process in Texas, and the representative districts of, for the coastal uh, area are very small, uh, not highly populated, no big cities. Galveston and Corpus Christi are, are, are the largest cities, and you have people in, you know, Dallas and West Texas who will say, throw up their hands and say, the, you know, why should we do this? And it, it's hard to get the legislative effort um, on site to do that. Whereas when you have a port and you have, uh, you know, a Fortune 100 company like Dow or BASF or Phillips 66, they integrate throughout um, the state with um, their jobs, their market, their 
uh, economic impact. So uh, it's a much easier job to to sell major uh, port funding than it is uh, uh, for the beach funding for that reason. You know, I think there's another, Tyler and I have worked on, on coastal project financing and beach restoration in North Carolina and Florida, some in Texas, but it doesn't get the focus here that it does in other states. But one of the things that I've noticed is there is a connection between the level of investment and the geographic orientation of the state. And, you know, you were sort of making that point. There, there's not a lot of political horsepower or biggest political urban areas are not on the shoreline. Texas is a very deep state with 254 counties, only what, 13 of which are coastal. And right. our biggest cities are inland. North Carolina is similar, a low population, low density shoreline, absolutely beautiful, threatened with a lot of erosion. But the pol- political power of the state is in Raleigh, Durham, and inland. And it's been a real fight, although I have to say they've made progress there um, on state funding. And then you get to a place like Florida that virtually every county in the state is coastal. And, of course, they have a a very powerful shoreline management program and agency. So part of this is, as you say, it's where the political power in the state lies. And the unfortunate part of that is – Texas has an underappreciated coast, and we underinvest to the detriment of the state. We have a tremendous asset in the Texas coast, but we can't seem to get that reliable, steady, predictable, long-term funding strategy uh, in place. And and I think the absence of that is is really hurting Texas and is essential, I think you were saying, essential to the process of managing our shorelines. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and again, that's, that's kind of why when I was fighting the battles is that I wanted to do big splashes rather than uh, uh, a few minor projects. Uh, I was involved in a couple of the Galveston Beach uh, renourishment programs. And, you know, there's there's mixed feelings about uh, Galveston has such a rich history, uh, but it you know has the seawall, and the seawall is great for protecting the city, but the energy forces bounce off of the seawall and erode the beach eventually over time, and so that happened, and uh, um, we had to find uh, programs to be able to nourish that and. Another one of the challenges we have is is finding sand to uh, to to nourish the beaches at a at a reasonable cost. And so the the land office has funded lots of studies, sand source studies, trying to to locate uh, different bodies of sand which could be economically used to restore beaches in Galveston and uh, Surfside, a small town uh, uh, south of Galveston, a very uh, popular uh, uh, beach town here in Brazoria County. And also in South Padre Island, where we did have some success because we were able to, uh, after a few years of arm twisting, work with the Army Corps of Engineers to have them, who they regularly dredge the entrance channel with a hopper dredge, which is a kind of a ship-going dredge that uh, is the only kind that can work in entrance channels like that. And they were just taking this sand and dumping it 10 miles offshore. And right. the reason they did that is because the Corps of Engineers has 
a funding mandate that says they have to go with the least cost option. And the least cost option was not to stop and park your hopper bar, hopper dredge on uh, the coast and pump the sand down the beach. And so the general land office took over that local share of that. And that project is still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that's one of the things that, uh, you know, success stories that we can really uh, shout about is because this one's still ongoing because that's always going to have to be dredged. And in between the, the local governments of South Padre Island and the county and the state, um, I think everybody has seen now that that's an important thing to continue. Um, so uh, uh, not harping on all the bad news, that's been a major uh, that, success. Uh, it is absolutely a success. <laughs> No, it is. It's a it's a tremendous success story, and anyone who's had the pleasure of going down to South Padre would will note that there's a robust dune field, and it's beautifully vegetated, and it, all of that sediment uh, was not present before this beneficial use program was imp, you know was first implemented. And of course, there's tremendous benefits to you know from a storm pre disaster mitigation perspective. But also from a recreational perspective, it is just more beautiful out there with that big, wide beach and that big, wide dune field. It is a a wonderful accomplishment. Right. And, you know, one of the things about uh, South Padre is is you can make the economic benefit study just on the tourism and the draw uh, to the beaches because they're, you know, it's a, a, a spot that's known all over the country for spring break. Of course, and a very, very popular beach. I think their annual visitorship numbers are close to a million, at least because they count the cars coming across the bridge, so we can't say that's all going to the beach, but tremendous, of course. Coastal tourism town where the beach is the draw, the investment makes sense, and you all were able to to work with the Corps and the city to put in place this beneficial use program. and. Obviously, Eddie, I think we've been around long enough to know every chance we get to make that happen, we've got to do it. It's, it is uh, unforgivable, in my opinion, that beach-quality sand on the Texas coast that is dredged from navigation channels goes anywhere else except on the Gulf shoreline or in cases where it's suitable into the bay system for marsh restoration. I mean, this is just common sense now. And that would go more broadly, I mean, across the American shoreline. Um, We need to be using sediments in the most uh, thought-through way possible, and dumping them willy-nilly out into the ocean waters is is just not sensible these days. And go ahead. A couple of things on that is we were talking about the different states and how how they some work together and and some don't because of... uh, the size and uh, distance from the beaches, but Louisiana with their marsh restoration, uh, I was a partner with several uh, organizations over there and attended meetings regularly with uh, the people in Louisiana and everybody in the state is on the same page. Both parties, uh, industry, resource agencies, everybody, fishermen, they're all on the same page and and they, they get a lot done. They have a huge task to, to restore the marshes, but um, they are working together. Our, our challenge then as you go further north on the coast from South Padre going up to Corpus is, is that, you know, we start to run out of sand. We have so much silt mixed in with very fine sand 
that you don't have easy places to yeah. to locate uh, repetitive beneficial use projects. Indeed. They, they pretty much have to be one-off projects of identifying a, a sand source and, and using that for a particular project. Mm, yeah, there's a lot of challenges in Texas on sand sources, and and especially down south. And I'll, I'll tell you that, that right now in front of the general land office is the Cameron County Erosion Response Plan, which is meant to address the long-term land planning uh, north of the city of South Padre Island, that long stretch of undeveloped barrier island uh, that we know is going to be built on. And uh, in that particular case, uh, it looks like uh, you know, putting structures on that shoreline 200 feet back from the line of vegetation is is going to be permitted. There are some exceptions to that even. And what I wonder here is, does the county really understand the long-term financial risk that it is taking on uh, when there are no inexpensive sand sources that are not already uh, committed? The the sediment from the Brazos-Santiago Pass that's used to beneficially nourish the city's beaches is already used. But as you go further north, I, I have a, a great trepidation about the financial capacity of that county and the state of Texas to hold the shoreline position uh, north of South Padre Island in, uh, when we have an annual erosion rate of 10 feet per year and more. Uh, it, it makes me wonder, can we get smarter about this, or can we not? Well, that, that brings up an interesting topic, is um, uh, you start to get in that area of the COBRA, the Coastal Barrier Resources Act, where they have drawn maps in areas that you're not qualified for federal flood insurance. And I think that's the only thing that slowed down that progress in, in Cameron County, is, is those areas uh, not qualifying for, for federally funded insurance. And that's a big battle because a lot of the local people see that as a, a big potential uh, economic uh, driving factor. Whereas do we wanna start undoing um, uh, what was a uh, very beneficial thing of, of implementing those zones where uh, the federal government would not uh, uh, buy off on uh, uh, never-ending um, uh, flood losses. Right. Uh, you drive down the road um, in certain areas uh, in uh, Brazoria County in particular, um, uh, going north of Surfside toward Galveston on Paulitz Island, and people will say, why aren't there houses here and there's houses there? Why aren't there any houses over here? And it's all because of the Cobra Zone. Yeah, and you know, Cobra I think is a sensible policy, uh, regardless of the political persuasion of the folks that are involved in administering that program, uh, because it 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 absolutely attempts to identify risky areas and discourage additional development in those areas. But Cobra is under constant pressure. Uh, from right. local communities to change the maps, to release the federal funds. And you're right, it's availability of federal flood insurance, which is huge in terms of residential development and commercial development on the American shoreline. But it also uh, affects federal transportation spending and 
and and Corps of Engineers beach restoration funding, which is prohibited in Cobra areas. So all of those factors work to restrain development in unwise areas. And I, I'm a fan of Cobra. I think uh, I get I get the frustration in communities that we've worked in, but in the long run, I think we're going to need that restraint more and more as, you know, this, if this national climate assessment report is half right. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, Eddie, just, just I'm going to pile on. I think that there's, you know, when we're thinking about uh, our local elected officials down there in, in South Texas and uh, community members who look at the economic benefit of and, you know, tax base benefit of potentially maybe developing those undeveloped portions of uh, the area north of the city of South Padre Island, there's also an economic benefit to not developing them. And I think that that's harder to see and requires maybe a little bit more imagination. But uh, what's clear is the economic benefit of the Padre Island National Seashore is clear. It's visited tremendously and it's it's extremely popular and it's a irreplaceable asset to the texas coast and to texans and to the nation uh and that economic benefit cannot be overlooked when we're talking about potentially uh losing an area that's very similar to that which is the the area north of the city of south padre yes um and uh, along those same lines there there are so many challenges to building further north on on uh on south padre island i mean all of your utilities have to go across you know pipelines or aerials um across the the bay to serve south padre island and all you have to have is a, a break in a water line for the whole town to shut down mm-hmm. uh, and then also you have the factor of evacuation routes you know do you want to increase you know, the, the population density to the point where you still only have that one ingress egress point, uh, when, when you have a fast approaching storm where there could be some kind of disaster. And so, you know, as y'all are aware, there's, there's there's been talk for years of a more of a Northern causeway too. So, um, uh, I don't think the economics on that idea have turned yet, but as you say, the, the, the locals and, uh, certain other people are, are still trying to, to, to win that fight. You know, I, I just want to color this in just a little bit more, too. So Cameron County, where we're talking about here down in South Texas, uh, is right on the border of Texas and Mexico along the coast. And for the past, oh, goodness, 20 years, Peter, that area has been... Uh, in a economic transformation, there has been a lot of investment there. There's been a lot of mm-hmm. development there. And it is, you, you, you know, people start to see the opportunities of this shoreline increasingly. I mean, back 50 years ago, that was a sparsely populated. I mean, South Padre was nothing like it is today. It no. is yes. dramatically yeah, transformed. Like a little beach down, yeah. No, it's a it's a high rise beach town. It's on its way to getting you know more valuable, and uh, of course SpaceX is is just across the ship channel from the city owns a big piece of property where they are going to start testing the engines for the 
the new rocket that they're building was called the BFR, which I think they've renamed to what, Space <laughs> Star Trek or something. <laughs> but, but you know, the, the idea of that remote location, beachfront location, become a, becoming a commercial launch facility is exciting and concerning, depending on what your perspective is on the use of coastal property. Um, but I want to. I think I want to slide up the coast here, Eddie, and and uh, we could spend a whole let program me, on South. One, one more thing on South Padre. Yeah, go ahead. Go <clears throat> is, is one of the other things is, is that they've escaped the the rash of hurricanes that we've had over the last fifteen years in South Padre Island without any direct hits or real glancing blows. So you sort of get a feeling of um, invulnerability. Uh, when that happens, and there's been so much development since they've been impacted that uh, it, it will be quite severe when, when their turn comes. It, it's true, and I think your point on the evacuation is well taken. I think the the speed, you know, obviously the evacuation from Paradise, California, and the fires was a calamity that cost the lives of hundreds of Americans, but uh Hurricanes can be quick as well. Hurricane Michael that just hit the Florida Panhandle was a was a tropical depression on the Yucatan Peninsula, and three days later it was a Category 4 storm destroying the town of Mexico Beach. And, you know, evacuation timing and capacity is absolutely a major uh, consideration in future development of Padre. And you're right, there's that North Causeway plan that's sitting there, and I don't know who's going to spend the billion or so to build it i think it's a very expensive project but we'll see and but let's talk about other parts of the coast in your experience and get up to your neck of the woods in <clears throat> in okay. brazoria county and uh the long and interesting history of the city of surfside and quintana uh two towns on the adjoining side of the freeport ship channel and then the planned, I mean, what I think this topic is so good for, Eddie, is it shows the, the intimate connection between our ports and waterway management decision making and our coastal community uh, impact uh, issues, you know, and, and erosion. So what, what's going on in the Freeport area? And, and maybe fill our listeners in a little bit on the on the interesting town of Surfside and the and the even more interesting history of Quintana. Sure, yes, they, they are very uh, colorful, interesting places. Um, uh, uh, one that uh, got a lot of our attention when we were at the General Land Office. Uh, port Freeport is, um, uh, it's a major port, but it, it, it has a lot of advantages for certain uh, shippers. It's going to be the first Texas post-Panamax depth port in Texas. It's recently authorized. It's already minus 45, and they're uh, authorized to go to minus 50 with um, the funding that's been in place uh, that was recently uh, signed this year. So that's all moving forward. Um, and what drives it, of course, is, is industry, the, the Dow Chemicals, the BASF, the LNG that's being built there. It's, it's crazy the amount of construction going on at the port facilities here in, in Port Freeport. Um, you know, that said, uh, when we were managing and looking at the erosion and Surfside had, had uh, really suffered some uh, horrific erosion to the point where 
you know, we were dealing with the houses on the beach issue because the erosion was so fast it was putting houses on the beach after every storm cycle. Right. Let me let me interrupt just real quick in in terms of the setting for our our listeners who uh, don't reside in Texas. the Port Freeport entrance channel cuts through the barrier island is a jettied inlet, a substantial jettied inlet, as you're saying, going to 50 feet deep for Panamax ships. And on either side of the jetty are the two towns of Surfside and Quintana, but they're immediately adjacent to this very deep, uh, hydrographically powerful uh, port entrance that and so I just wanted for the benefit of those folks from out of state that's kind of what we're talking about two small towns on either side of a jettied port inlet a major U.S. port right and and the other factor with this that you that you can't forget is that the Brazos River which would be the normal um, uh, geologic function that would replenish the sediment in that area was diverted to the south for that reason, so that it would not have to be dredged or maintained as much as it would be had it not been relocated. Right. So the Brazos River was relocated to the south, and of course the current there still carries it to the south, so it doesn't come back in to to fill up that area. So you have several things um, combining to, to really accelerate the erosion. And there was a study done when I was at the land office to, to look at, okay, well, what's causing this problem at, at Surfside? You know, there's other areas where you have an entrance channel, but we don't have, you know, this kind of uh, fast erosion. And what uh, was discovered in, in the report is that uh, because of that deepening, the, the channel, as you say, cuts through the barrier island, and then you have rock jetties on either side that uh, go out a mile or so, mm-hmm. and that uh, channel has to be maintained that depth all the way out. And what had been shown is that the uh, the entire beachfront was deepening on both sides of the jetties as well as in the jetties when the the when it first went down past 40 feet, when it started going down to minus 42 and now minus 45. And so uh, I think it's going to be something that's, that's going to really need some attention in the future uh, as this goes to, to minus 50. Right. Uh, there, there are uh, contingencies for using some of the, the sand um, that's uh, made in the deepening project. Right, to, the new work uh, material. Right, the new work. Is However, pretty when good, you get down to sand. that depth, you start to get into <laughs> at about minus 38 to minus 40 in this area. So you, you, you kind of run out of sand. So I don't think it's going to be a big um, uh, uh, boon on the, uh, the sand resources with um, the, the new work project. So it's, it, um, that's something that I think really needs some, some serious uh, you know, looks. Um, I guess, I don't know if you want to say unfortunately or uh, yeah. uh, fortunately, but when you when you have these problems of the seriously eroding barrier islands like you have at uh, Follett's Island, Surfside in Quintana, then you also have at uh, Galveston and Bolivar, is that it becomes not only a threat to the barrier islands, but to the industries that are inland. Right. The hike was almost a catastrophic disaster had it hit just a little bit further south. It would have overwashed 
you know, the largest petrochemical complex in the United States along the Houston Ship Channel. Right. And, and, and that can also happen uh, here in Brazoria County at Fort Freeport. So that's something that's going to uh, uh, really be need to, to take into consideration. There is a storm protection levy um, around um, the major industries there uh, that offers them uh, uh, some protection. But with the size of storms that we're seeing these days, um, it could turn into more of a, a Katrina situation where you get the water over the levees and somehow yeah. trapped inside and your problem's worse than whether you had the levees in the first place. Yeah, you got to pump it out. Well, yeah. I think one of the things that I, 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 I'm glad you are laying this out in this detail is is one of the main themes that we're trying to do with Coastal News today and with the American Shoreline Podcast Network is to talk about the interplay of these economic interests on the American shoreline. And, you know, every good local government and economic development person is going to generally be in favor of expanded capacity at Port Freeport. You know, the industry and the jobs and the economics of that are powerful interests and are important. But, as you're saying, the it is we are smart enough now to know that the direct implication of that decision to go to 50 feet, which you know with the Panama ships and the Panama Canal is just absolutely sensible. It's happening all over the eastern seaboard in the Gulf of Mexico. Every damn port is in the business of trying to get deeper. But you have to account for these economic um, issues related to that, and I. I question whether the state of Texas is prepared economically, since we know we don't have a fully funded KEPRA program. Our Coastal Erosion Planning and Response Act is not funded. How would we, I mean, we're just not prepared. And, I, and I'm hoping that, you know, the, the smart folks at the land office and at the Corps of Engineers and at Port Freeport uh, take seriously this, this impact. Because, by golly, the economic horsepower of that port is big enough to offset that if they'll take it seriously. And I hope I hope we see that kind of planning emerge uh, with the leadership at the land office and at the Galveston District of the Corps. Right, and, and with the, at Freeport itself. Um, yeah, one of the interesting things that I had learned a long time ago and uh, working in this area with a lot of the major uh, petrochemical companies, the Dow's, the BASF's, you know, you, you think of these as these big, you know, multinational corporations but the people who work there live there are you know just uh you know joe in the pickup truck next door who goes fishing every weekend in this area who really loves this area and so um you can kind of get um at least the the local forces uh together to try to try to do something so it's going to be interesting to see as I, I, I'm really fearful of the erosion on, on Quintana and Surfside. You know, when it, the, the, the obvious thing for the industries to do is to raise the, raise the levy armor around their specific ports and, and that type of thing. But in the long run, that's still not the answer. You can't have that open space um, coming from the Gulf of Mexico straight hitting the, the petrochemical plants. What is the answer? Uh, I think you have to really restore the the barrier islands. Um, uh, they have to be uh, uh, beaches have to be nourished. The marshes have to be restored. 
Um, I don't think any of the armoring on the Gulf side is uh, a good idea, but I, I do think that uh, there is going to have to be further armoring around the plants, uh, uh, um, bulkheads and such to, and there's talk about that as, as part of the, the deepening project that uh, hmm. when you get into that, then you start to get into the structural foundation where you're affecting, you know, big plants that are being built and your uh, slopes for stability. Uh, okay, well, we've got to come in here and now and, you know, build this entire support bulkhead structure around this part of the Dow um, facility or it's going to fall into the port. That's interesting. You know, I'm thinking about it, you know, I, at, when you think about deepening a major uh, port channel, um, you know, we tip, I tend to typically focus on the sediment that you're removing, but that also means that there is more water in the system. And uh, of course that has to be accounted for. So uh, it is interesting to think about all of the, the myriad of impacts you know, as Peter said earlier, when the decision to widen the Panama Canal has a cascade of follow-on infrastructure work, uh, I was in New York a couple years ago, and I was hanging out with a buddy of mine who's in the Coast Guard, and at the time he was working on a project to expand the major shipping anchorages out at sea. And what he explained to me is that, you know, the, the sea bottom out there uh, is not particularly conducive for anchoring these really large <laughs> container ships. So they were actually going out there with with these massive boulders and and dropping the boulders down and creating a, an anchorage field. Uh, because, of course, these Panamax ships require a longer anchor chain, longer anchor line to, to hold. And so that means that the, you could draw a circle around that anchor point, and as the tides move and as the wind moves, that, that circle is going to be where the ship's going to drift. And if you make the ships bigger, the circle gets bigger, which means you, you need this much larger sure. anchorage. You know, <laughs> This is the impact yeah. of widening the channel. You now have larger ships, you need larger anchorage. So I do think that it's as we become more sophisticated and forward-thinking in our coastal planning, I think it is only right that these uh, shipping channels and and this this piece of the coastal community uh, be financially tied to the impacts that are created from those decisions. Hmm. Right, and, I'm, and it's going to take voices like yours to 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 tie this together because you know at the end of the day, I think that you know the industries um, um, will need to have. Uh, these islands uh, re-nourished and restored and other structures built. There's been different things talked about at Surfside to attenuate some of the wave action there, uh, but uh, haven't been implemented, but they should all be a part of this. And I think we have to be really careful to, um, uh, to anticipate what you can call unexpected consequences. Right. I think I think we're I think we're past the point where we can credibly say that these are unexpected impacts. I think we the specifics and how it works out and exactly the magnitude of these uh, secondary impacts are debatable. The fact that they're going to affect the shoreline is no longer credible to, to conclude that. And I and I do think it puts a premium on good solid coastal planning and leadership at the state and federal level uh, 
with the strong voice of the local communities. And I, I think you're quite right, and it's, it's, it's important not to overlook. The people who work at the Dow plant love to hunt and fish, and they are boaters, and they are fishermen, and they are beachgoers. And, and conservationists. And conservationists. And yeah. they care about these shorelines, and it's not simply a one-dimensional decision about the modification of these port entrance channels, even though I absolutely understand that that needs to be done and will be done, it's what's the larger context. And we haven't even talked about the Ike Dyke, and I don't think we should <laughs> because it overwhelms all of the discussions, but we're, we're right. focusing on the, the same types of trade-offs at Port Freeport. And I think that's important for our listeners to know that, you know, boy, the Texas coast is a is a big wild thing and there's a lot going on on the texas shoreline yeah what we have to be careful of is to to not make it an an us versus them of the one or two voices in the crowd speaking up for the natural resources versus the economic uh development it has to be you know a partnership of everybody together is okay we agree this is going to happen but we need to to do this too Hmm. and to work with each other. And I think a lot of times in the past, that's kind of what you got. If you kind of got a couple of voices in the crowd that were <clears throat> not really a part of the, the whole group, and therefore they kind of got looked at as, you know, this, is, this isn't really something serious that we need to listen to. And so that's why I think it's important hmm. to bring all of the local residents that are fishermen and um, uh, boaters and, and such uh, into the equation. And and help everybody understand that in uh, a way that's not antagonistic. Well, absolutely right. And I think, uh, you know, we talked, we sat down and talked to Scott Jones, who's the uh, advocacy, director of advocacy for the Galveston Bay Foundation. Been there, I think he said 13 years. But there are some models that, that get close to what you're talking about. I think the Galveston Bay Foundation um, integrated decision-making where the and the waterway people and the environmental community and, and the real estate people and everybody's at the table is important. And then we can slide over to Louisiana. And I, I completely agree with you. I think Louisiana uh, is in the leading role in coastal planning in America right now. And uh, there is a, well, it doesn't hurt that there's $50 billion in the system, uh, but you have the industry people in the oil and gas industry and the petrochemical industry as committed to shoreline management as the environmental community and they're working together and uh, i think there's a lot of success over in louisiana and something's missing in texas in that regard and i'm not quite sure what it is well one of the things that we have to uh, uh, keep in mind which i think i've brought up a couple of times is we can't be scared to do big projects and that's what Louisiana has been really good at. They have these jobs that, uh, you know, dredging projects for marsh restoration that, you know, people 15 years or 20 years ago would say that's impossible to do that. They have these long distance pumping from the channels that may go 15 or 20 miles yes, they do. To, to the uh, ultimate marsh restoration area. And um, that's the kind of things that, that we need to look at, you know, from me and the, the dredging background is, you know, that's one of the things uh, I've learned is people have asked me, you know, well, how far can you pump this? I say, 
as far as you want to pump it. All it takes is pipeline and booster pumps. Right. Uh, before you go, right. it'll go. So it's just a matter of committing to put that, that infrastructure in. Hmm. And in certain places in Louisiana, uh, uh, they have put in permanent pipelines so that every time it's dredged that it goes to re-nourish these marshes in the area. You don't have to constantly relay the pipeline or have a new contractor come in and do that. So uh, uh, you have to have some forward thought in this. And like I say, I think uh, one of the things that we've suffered from in Texas is is not making the, the projects bigger. Well, let's uh, let's do ourselves a favor then on the podcast, Eddie, and, and uh, let's imagine that you could snap your fingers and approve a big level project like you're like what you're describing what would be your top priority for the texas coast oh it's tough it's uh it's 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 uh, galveston bolivar and uh Follett's island i think all of those upper texas beaches need major re-nourishment you know we're talking about millions of cubic yards of sand uh, one of the things that um, had been done in uh, uh, Galveston Island, uh, people not familiar with it, the city of Galveston on the north end of the island has the seawall. And then as you go south, what's called West Galveston Island is, is basically individual homeowners and subdivisions, which isn't protected by the, uh, by the seawall. And one of the things our, our mutual friend, Terry Patterson used to say is, you know, when he was a kid, he would drive down the seawall in Galveston, Texas, and drive off of the seawall down the beach in front of West Galveston Island. And now it's 300 feet of erosion from right. the seawall to where the West Galveston beaches start. That's right. And, and not only that is when you get past 60th Street, the streets are numbered one on the north end and go past the hundreds on uh, the west end. Uh, they haven't nourished that area along the seawall, and there's no beach from 60th Street to the end of the seawall. They've gotten a little bit better. I think they did Babe's Beach, and I, I you know who would know all of this is Ruben Trevino, the uh, the Coastal Management Director for the Parks Board of Trustees. I'd love to get Ruben on and catch us up, but I think you're quite right about the size and magnitude of the project necessary in Galveston and on Follett's Island and, you know, we haven't crossed over the Galveston Ship Channel to Bolivar, really, to talk about what's going on there. I will note for the record that there's a $60 million beach restoration project uh, funded on in Jefferson County that's going to protect the, uh, the National Wildlife, the McFadden National Wildlife Refuge in the Intercoastal Waterway. That's This is north of uh, yeah, Houston, getting, the, the yeah. Houston Ship Channel. Yeah, we're going way, way, well— way east and getting over to Louisiana and you know that's an interesting project to me there it is an undeveloped shoreline but there are obviously resource natural resource protection issues and landward shipping lanes that are important Uh, that's a project of massive scale Um, we haven't done that in any of the residential areas and uh, that I've seen you know a little bit here and there as you say the small kinds projects here and there I, here's a question I'd like to ask you as a former director of the Kepler program at the land office. I have always wondered, you know, why Texas centralizes its coastal planning 
so heavily in Austin, Texas, where the contractors, the engineering firms are hired and managed out of Austin. All of the project funding is managed out of Austin. Um, it's not distributed. And, and, and I think the land office is facing a very big challenge to manage all of this. And boy, you go to Louisiana, you have the CPRA, the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, which is a huge agency to try to tackle that issue. That's, an, wow. that's one way, a dedicated agency. Or you go to North Carolina, where local communities hire, retain, and manage with financial support to the state. And I, I've always thought, I really have a question about whether the structure, the governmental and legal structure of the Texas approach to erosion response and shore management is the right one. I mean, I may be totally wrong on that, Eddie. What is your view on this? I think we have a very, very centralized system when it comes to. Yeah, I'm going to challenge both of you all a little bit on that. Okay. Uh, having been in, in, in the midst of it is okay. that uh, uh, when I was the director of the program, I probably traveled twice a week to different parts of the coast every week, attended meetings all up and down the coast. And my phone was constantly ringing from everybody on the coast. We knew them well. They knew us well. They yeah. were in our office. We were, we were linked to these coastal people. I don't think we were out of touch at all. I don't know if that's changed because of the Kepler program not having a continuous funding stream uh, since the 2008, really. So um, I think it, it could create a disconnect, which is a, which is a real uh, uh, problem. But um, uh, yeah, I think it really is important to have that connection. And as, as y'all know, the General Land Office is a uh, political office uh, with the, the commissioner being um, elected by the people of Texas. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of pressure on budgets and why do we do this? And why do we need to fly these people down on the state plane to meet with the coastal people in Galveston and South Padre yeah. Island every week and that sort of thing? But uh, uh, we did a whole lot of that. We we logged a lot of miles on Southwest and <laughs> Texas yeah. state plains when I was there. Man. Well, it's, I think it's the way it has to be done. It, it is an intimate exercise to develop these prog programs and these projects. Um, they take years, and they take a substantial financial commitment. The regulatory issues are complicated, and it has to be uh, a full-court press. And I, I don't know how—I I don't know what the status of the KEPRA program relationship is uh, with the coastal communities these days. I, love to have somebody on from the land office to catch us up one day but i will say this there's there the funding sources that are coming out of the restore bp oil spill uh, into texas are significant the gomisa revenue which is the federal revenue sharing uh, program for offshore oil and gas uh, from federal resources is putting put 40 million dollars into the land office's hands this year they are eligible for $100 million a year until 2055. There is a chance that the state of Texas will somehow fall into a steady, regular funding stream uh, that won't be the creation of our Texas legislature, but will be a gift from these federal programs. But I, I'm really hoping to see uh, a real stepped-up level of, of openness and planning 
that engages those communities down there. Eddie, I think that was the secret to what you guys were successful doing in you know that 10 year period you were there. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have that network of the um, coastal constituents with the the people who are making the, the decisions at, at the state level. So uh, however that has to be done, whatever structure it needs to be done uh, is, is a very important challenge before the, the money starts going in, in directions that, that really doesn't benefit everyone. Well, listen, uh, you know, I think that uh, one of the things I want to just say is this is this has been kind of a deep dive into <laughs> many of the issues on the Texas coast. And of course, our audience is covers the entire American shoreline from sea to shining sea, from the rocky shorelines of, of Maine all the way around to Southern California and Hawaii. And we're talking about uh, Texas and the Texas state government and a little bit about Louisiana. But I think that what you have to understand is there are analogous programs and and um, scenarios all over the coast. And so we think, first of all, you know, this is our backyard beach. So we, we have a special attachment here in Texas being headquartered in Austin to uh, studying uh, the Texas shoreline. But we also look forward to dedicating the same uh, attention and and deep dive into all of the other states. We're actually considering doing a a state by state series uh, here on ASPN in the future to, to to do that. But in the meantime, you know, listen to these shows that are about regions that are not your own. There is so much to be learned and so much similarity uh, in the methods of, of planning and management that are going on around the shoreline. And it's just critical that we, we listen to each other and learn from, uh, for example, the experience of you, Eddie. I mean, you've, you've got a career on the Texas shoreline uh, that uh, you have a lot to teach all of us. Yes, and, and that, that really is important, the um, integrating and sharing of all this information. We did have several ways to do that. Um, we had the Coastal States Organization. I don't know what the status of that is now, but it's where the coastal groups from all of the states would come together and we would meet in Washington, D.C. and around the country to share ideas and make directions for policy changes. That's why they were located in Washington, D.C. is because it was to affect policy. And then also a lot of the Coastal Management Program, uh, NOAA-funded program, the, the programs are audited every several years. And what they like to do is they have somebody from another state uh, company, the NOAA people, when you go, uh, when they're doing their audit of their state. Right. And you go out and look at their projects, you go to meetings. I went to South Carolina. It was a wonderful experience to, to learn of their problems and share information with how you can uh, help each other and, and or, or at least hold hands and, and uh, know how to, to dodge the, uh, the rocks being thrown your way. <laughs> well, Eddie, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, Eddie Fisher, Vice President of Gulf Hydrographic and Coastal Consulting uh, and a longtime professional on the Texas coast and in the dredging business and in the government program business. Uh, Eddie, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline Podcast. Well, thank you for the, the time. I really appreciated it. As you can probably tell, I'm passionate <laughs> about these uh, issues and really appreciate the, the work that y'all are doing.
Well, thank you very much, Eddie, and a big shout out to all of our listeners. And uh, share the podcast. Tell folks to subscribe, uh, rate, and review. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, free subscriptions at coastalnewstoday.com. You get all of the podcasts on the American Shoreline uh, Podcast Network. There are 28 shows on the network. And we, we passed 3,400 listens today, and uh, we want to thank all the folks out there who listen to ASPN. And Tyler, thanks for uh, putting this show together today. And Eddie, thank you. 